Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 6. Lately, I've been thinking about when my children were young. And I, every time I think about when my children were young, I praise God that they're old. <laughs> and out of the house. Um, <clears throat> but uh, especially, I've been thinking about uh, Lauren sitting over here and... Um, Thinking about when she was, I guess, early grade school, and she and some of our neighborhood kids would get together and they would dream up uh, plays like, you know, action stuff, and they would keep themselves busy for hours doing that. The worst part of that, I, I love the imaginative learning and all of the stuff that goes with that. The worst part of it was when they said, Daddy, sit down, we want to show you this. <laughs> and uh, maybe for a mother that's okay, but for a father it was torture. I don't mind telling you. She thinks I loved it. I let her know that I thought I loved it. But no, now actually what I want to emphasize from that is children have a way of needing your attention. One of the reasons that I've been thinking about lately is because Teresa and I found out recently that we're going to be grandparents for the first time. Oh, don't, don't applause for me. I'm just seeing all that money starting to fly out the window now. <laughs> and uh, something tells me that when the grandkid comes, this will be our first one, by the way, not Lauren. It's our son who's married. He and his wife live in Conroe. And um, they're due sometime in November, which is also the time our other son is planning on getting married. And uh, so it's going to be a busy fall for us. But I'm thinking about Lauren and those early years when they needed us to watch them do stuff and show them our approval with that. And I'm thinking that when it's a grandkid, it's probably going to be a lot easier to sit through some of that stuff. Probably not because they're different, but because I'm different. Now, I want you to take that, I want you to hang on to it. Our need, particularly as children, but see it stretches to us, our need to be needed and to acknowledged, to be acknowledged. Um, and I'm particularly wanting us to think about that in terms of our religious life. And I use that term religious mostly today in a very positive context. Is it possible that we need to be acknowledged in our religious expressions. I started that prayer time a few minutes ago by asking the pointed question, what in the world are you doing here? I'm smart enough to know because I've been there. I'm smart enough to know that some people are in church today, whether it's this one or some other one, strictly because they know that somebody's expecting them to be there. So I want us to think on that point together as we work through this message today. We, we come to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. It's the next step in the uh, Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is teaching. And particularly today, we begin to turn our sights with Jesus to a point of our religious expression that uh, might make us a little uncomfortable when we start digging on it just a little bit. Is it possible that our need to be needed extends into our religious expression? How we live out our religious beliefs. 
Let me give you a couple of examples of that as it relates to prayer. I think I mentioned this in a sermon not too long ago, but if I did, just bear with me because it really fits the point today very well. So if it's a repetition, then just forgive me for that and listen with both ears. Uh, Teresa and I were on an airplane not too long ago, uh, almost a year ago now, when we flew from Newark, New Jersey to Tel Aviv, Israel. Now, actually, we started in the Rio Grande Valley and we flew early, first flight out that morning to Houston. And we had a, a, a short layover there and then we flew from Houston to Newark. And just to show you how sharp I am, uh, we had been in the Newark airport for maybe an hour or so, and I looked around and I thought, we're not in Texas anymore. <laughs> now, here's how I knew that. The people were strange in Newark, New Jersey. That's not true in Texas. But I started noticing in Newark, New Jersey, in this part of the airport where we found ourselves, they had a Starbucks, so life was good. And they had a hamburger place that served great hamburgers, so life was better. Uh, but the layover part of it caused us to spend a lot of time in one whole wing of this particular airport in Newark, New Jersey. And I started noticing that there were these people who were coming in who were um, different looking. Now, particularly, they were different looking in a way that I knew what to expect. And so I immediately recognized them as Hasidic Jews. That's Hasidic with an H, not Hasidic like in, you know, burn your stomach kind of thing. Hasidic Jews. It's a section of Jewish religion where they're very orthodox in their beliefs. I could say a whole lot more about them, but let me just get you to start thinking. The picture is they're walking around in their religious garb, sort of like a suit, but something different. They had a, a hat that was not like a, you know, a cowboy hat. It was different looking. Uh, but what really set them off for the men were these curls that came from their temples down to about here, some of them even down onto their shoulders. And so as I watched them, I thought, I'm not in Texas anymore. I've never seen that in Texas. Not that they're not here. I've just never seen them here. And they were everywhere. Right there where, we're, we're, where we were waiting. Well, that's a hard thing to say for them. Right where we were waiting, these Hasidic Jews were congregating. And then it dawned on me. Duh, maybe they're going to Israel like we are. See, I'm quick like that. I pick stuff up. And sure enough, when we started getting on the plane, man, they were all over it. As a matter of fact, Teresa and I sat in a section where there was one row behind us and then a bulkhead behind that, had a restroom in it and that kind of thing. And in that section that we were in, uh, they were a bunch of them. I'm going to guess probably 40 of them in that particular area. Maybe that's a little high, but preachers estimate numbers bigger, you know. So bunches of them in front of us. And so we were watching as they went about their deal. Now, this is a flight that takes all night long. We left there about four o'clock in the afternoon, landed at eight in the morning. And so we chased the night all the way across. And uh, I just watched them as they related. And they had, some of them had families with them and little kids and, you know, their wives were dressed in their religious garb and all that stuff. And so it was an intriguing thing for me to just kind of sit back. What else are you going to do on a plane for eight hours? Well, what was interesting was, as we started approaching morning, somewhere over the Mediterranean Sea or Central Europe, somewhere in that general area, all of a sudden, all of these men who were dressed in their religious garb jumped up almost at the same time. Now, I've seen 
TV shows, movies, and I thought, oh, what's going on here? I was starting to look for the air marshal with all of that stuff going on. And then I realized what it was. It was prayer time for them. And they jumped up and they started changing their clothes almost totally in front of us. And they started doing some things that, that I immediately recognized what it was, but I'd never seen it before. They took this one thing, it had a little box on it, and they put it on their wrist, and then they wrapped this leather strip, probably this long, maybe an inch and a half, two inches wide. They wrapped it around their arms. So a little cube kind of a box here, and that wrapped up on their arms. And then another guy, the guy sitting immediately in front of me, took this head covering and he put it on and it had one of those little boxes right here. And so I was watching this, I was fascinated by what I was seeing because I knew enough of the background of this Hasidic Jewish group of people to know that those were phylacteries. That'll come up again before we're through here this morning. But they were doing that as part of their prayer ritual. I was intrigued, I was enthralled, I was taken in by what I saw. And then they began to gravitate to different parts of the plane. Some of them tried to stand in the aisles, but the stewardesses and stewards would not let that happen. So what happened is they started going behind us to that bulkhead area I was talking about. And as many of them as they could get there, they faced the back of the plane and they started doing this. They had their prayer books in front of them and their prayer shawls on and over their heads. And they were going through their daily morning prayers. Now, that in and of itself was interesting, you know, it helped pass some time. I was taken by that. But I didn't realize it until this flight, but as you approach Israeli airspace, you get a certain distance away from their airspace, and their regulations require that people on airplanes get in their seats and don't get up. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty stern warning that was given multiple times to us. It is time to be in your seat. Don't think about getting up. If you haven't gone to the restroom, you are just out of luck until we land. The problem with that was these guys doing their prayer rituals didn't care. And so the stewards and the stewardesses started dealing with these guys and telling them, hey, you, I'm sorry, sir, but you have to go sit down. Uh, they Eyes closed, they never even acknowledged the presence of these other people, especially these stewards and stewardesses. One of them was so belligerent in his refusal to do what they were saying that he slipped into the bathroom so that they couldn't hassle him while he was doing his prayer stuff and stayed there for 45 minutes. Knocking on the door, saying, sir, you got to go to your chair. You can't be in here, etc." And it was just an amazing thing for me. I fully expected problems on that plane because of that. Even the pilot came over at one point and said, we're in place. You please need to go to your seats. Please cooperate, etc." Nobody did that. I came away from that with a very negative taste of that group of Jewish prayers. I want to retreat from there to another time in my life. It was in the Rio Grande Valley. We were expecting a hurricane to come through. Matter of fact, it was supposed to be hitting. And so we went to work that morning not knowing if we were going to be able to finish the day. And while we were at church, sure enough, the hurricane came in, but it took a last-minute jog to the south and went into Mexico. But we got some of the high winds and some of the rains, enough that it knocked out the power to the church where I was working at the time. 
And so for part of the day, we sat out in one of the foyer areas where there was light coming in, and we sat out and talked. And, and one of my friends came by. I knew this guy because I'd been dealing with him on some personal issues. And he came by, and he, he said, uh, you know, I, I need to talk to you. I said, that's fine. Uh, I said, we don't have any electricity. He said, I knew you wouldn't, and I knew you wouldn't be working. <laughs> I went, uh, thanks? What, what, what do you mean? But he said, no, actually, I was driving by. I felt like the Lord said, I need to come and sit down with you and pray with you. I said, okay, that's fine. So we started going towards my office, which was way dark because there's no windows in there. He said, no, no, I I really think we need to go into the auditorium to do this. Okay. So we went into the auditorium. I mean, pitch black, dark. We went down front. I had a flashlight, and we went down front and sat down, and uh, I said, we need to talk about anything? He said, no, I just want to pray for you. I said, Okay. Kind of awkward. And he said, you're not going to need that light. Just turn it off. I said, okay. So I'm sitting in the dark with this gun. I'm thinking, this is weird. And so I was sitting there, and it was just quiet and dark. And I sensed him get up and start walking around. And he started praying. And it was like heaven came down at that point. It was unorthodox, it was different, but it was a holy moment. And he began to just talk to God. I I mean, not the churchy kind of prayer, you know, the these and the thous and the wherefores and the what ifs. And It was just like a guy talking to a friend. I thought he was talking to me at first. And then he said something about, you know, being God and powerful. I thought, okay, well, he's not talking to me. And I mean heaven came down there. That became a crucial turning point in my life, in my ministry. I could talk to you at length about it. I want to just say this. If you ever go into my office, you'll notice on top of one of the bookshelves is one of those old sailing ships, cutter-type ships. He brought that to me later, and it was a direct result of what God was doing in my life tied to that moment. And I keep it in my office because of the importance of the moment and what God did in my life through that guy's prayers at that time. Now, the question is, what's the difference between those two prayer experiences? One left me with a sour taste in my mouth about the religion of those people. The other one took me to a holy place. Is it possible that our need to be needed can impact our religious expression? Matthew 6, 1. Jesus takes a turn. Now, it's not as much of a turn as we might think it is. At first glance, it looks like it's a total change of subject. But Jesus takes a turn here, and with it, he takes us to places that I promise you are going to stretch us. I know some of you sitting there saying, oh, man, I can't afford any more stretching. I've been been getting stuff from y'all for weeks now saying, if you don't stop stepping on my toes, I'm not going to be able to walk anymore. 
Let me just remind you, you get 30 minutes of it in here, I get a whole week of it from the Lord, all right? So let's just see what God's going to do with us at this particular point. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. The transition is that Jesus has been talking about this surpassing righteousness. That's chapter 5 and verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Excuse me. Then he gives six different examples of what that means. And what we've said through those six examples is he moves us from an exterior-based religion to one that is interior. It is an inside-out. And the way we please God, that surpassing righteousness, is that we have a heart transplant that affects in the end how we live out what we say we believe. So in chapter 6, verse 1, it's a switch, but that verse 20 is still the theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount. We're going to continue to come back to this surpassing righteousness thing, but now Jesus takes it and he puts it right square in the lap of the religionists of his day. One scholar, R.T. France, in a particular uh, conservative commentary that I like to uh, refer to every once in a while, said that, That chapter 5 stuff that we just got through working through is Jesus as he addresses some of the abuses of the scribes of that time. But when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, now Jesus begins to focus on some of the abuses of the Pharisees. Well, let's read it and let's see what it says. Chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Very simple verse. This one now becomes a subthesis. Chapter 5, verse 20 is the one that controls the whole Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, verse 1, as Jesus turns the focus just a little bit, he says, okay, now this is what we're going to talk about. And after this, most of the rest of chapter 6 through, I guess it's verse 18, I think, or 16, something like that, Jesus is going to be talking about three main elements of religious expression for first century Jewish people. He's going to talk first about giving alms, that is the giving stuff. Then he's going to talk about prayer, and then he's going to talk about fasting. Now, I'll say to you now, and I'll say to you many times as we go through the next few weeks as we work through these passages, that these are examples. The basic truth, the principle that drives all of those verses to come is verse 1. One more time. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Let me just stop there for a second. Go back to that thing of our kids doing those plays in the neighborhood and parents have to sit down and watch it and clap and all that kind of stuff. They did it because they needed parents' approval. They wanted us to say, oh, that was awesome, whether it was or not. It was, but whether it was or not, they needed us to say, that was good. You just bless my socks off when you do that kind of stuff. Jesus is taking that in a religious context now, and he says, stop showing off. Wow. No wonder they tried to kill him and were successful before it was over with. Haven't you noticed yet how direct Jesus can be in a loving kind of way? Be careful that you don't practice your right doing. Another translation says your pious acts. Be careful that you don't do that to be seen by men. We should stop for a second and let's pull a couple of things together. Look back with me to chapter 5. Remember the passage that after the Beatitudes where Jesus says you're salt of the earth and you're the light of the world? Remember that? 
And he says to us there, let's look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. And look at verse 16 now. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, time out. Didn't he, get, didn't he say in chapter 6, verse 1, that we're not supposed to do that? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Now, some people look at this and say, there, Jesus reverses course right here. Wrong. It's all about the motive. In chapter 5, verse 16, he's saying, don't... Well, he, in verse 16, he's saying, do your stuff before men. Why? So that they may see your good works and pat you on the back and say, hey, you're awesome. Wrong. So that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. But in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. You see the jump? It's a motive thing. Is it possible that we do our religious expressions because we need to be needed? And the answer to that is, yeah, unfortunately... That's very possible. Yesterday was St. Patrick's Day. I figured several of you would jump all over that. St. Patrick's Day. We don't even know who St. Patrick was or what he was about, but it's a good day to drink green beer, I'm told. And have parades, I'm told. Is it possible that we do our actions, religious actions, in order to be seen? Let me give you an example. Church I served some time ago. St. Patrick's Day fell on a Sunday morning. I happened to be gone that particular Sunday. I don't really remember why I was gone. I don't know if I was going to school or if I was just on vacation or, you know, just basically playing hooky or what. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the last one. And I came back to work the next day, and a man in the church came by to see me or call me. I don't remember which it was, but he said, we had a problem. Now, by the way, you want to bless your preacher's heart? When he gets back from vacation, first thing, call him and say, we got a problem. Okay? That's a great way to ruin a vacation. So I came, and I got this message. We got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, well, so-and-so, he named this person by name, uh, did the special music at church yesterday. Well, I knew this person, and I knew that actually she usually did a very good job. And I said, why is that a problem? He said, well, before she started, she said, today is St. Patrick's Day. And I'm paraphrasing what she said. It's St. Patrick's Day, and in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I, I wanted to sing this song that's Irish in its background and, you know, kind of talk through that kind of stuff and then started singing. I said, why is that a problem? He said, well... Because when she got up to do that, everything she said and the way she sang the song, she did in an Irish accent. And I said, I didn't realize she was Irish. No, actually what I said was, yeah, we got a problem. (laughs) Because I knew she wasn't Irish. And every other time you talked to her, she was decidedly not Irish. But on that day... With the way she did that, the communication was, look at me. Now, whether she intended that or not, I don't know. I'm not here trying to judge her motives at that. I'm just telling you how it was perceived by people. 
So let me come back to the question using that as an example and putting it back on you. And remember the question I started with, why are you even here today? Is it possible that we slip into a way of doing our church thing, our religious actions for selfish motives? Jesus says, stop showing off. He's taken on scribes, the Pharisees particularly at this point. Here's one of the reasons scholars say that. Look at uh, chapter 23. Now, Spencer has this for you, so you don't have to jump back and forth. Chapter 23, verses 5 through 7. Now, this is Jesus talking. Now, I'm going to actually start reading in verse 4. I'll tell you when we get to verse 5, okay? Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. Time out, stop. Did you catch what Jesus just said? The original, do what I say, not what I do. Except Jesus is not saying it about himself, he's saying it about the Pharisees. The professional religionist of his day, he says, listen to what they say about the law, but just don't do what they do. Verse 3, oh, excuse me, verse 4. Oh, at the end of that verse, for they preach... But do not practice. Verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. Verse 5 now, as Spencer has it for us. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. That's those little cube boxes that I was talking about I saw on the airplane. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. In other words, Jesus says, these guys are in it for themselves. Wow. Wow. Put yourself on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee with Jesus talking to you and he's singling out these people who are the head and shoulders above the crowd religionists. And he says, they're getting it wrong. Chapter 23, you look through that time after time Jesus says to those religious leaders, woe to you because it's all about you. Back to chapter 6. Serious business. So what Jesus is doing now is he's taking us another step into what it means to live with God as a disciple. Now he moves to the motives and the very things we do in the name of God. These three things, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, are called pillars in Judaism. They're some of the main things that if you intend to be one who moves forward into this surpassing righteousness in their minds, then you'll do these things well and often. Jesus doesn't say don't do them. He just says don't do them like that. How would you like to be in Scripture as the example of how not to live? No wonder they killed him. But this is not about Jesus even. This is about us. So let's look at this for just a second and see what the point is. Do we fit this teaching? Is it possible that we might operate in the simplest ways in our religious expression out of selfishness? Let me give you a couple of examples. 
Now, I have to tell you, I, I work with our Awanas here on Wednesday night. I get to do the Bible study part of that, all right, the Bible story part of that. And uh, that means that I get three groups of kids uh, graduating or different age groups, uh, and I get them for 20 minutes at a time over in the chapel. And they'll, some of them, you know, at one 20-minute segment, some of them will go to, to recreation and games and another 20-minute section they'll go to doing their memory verses and that kind of stuff. But I get them for 20 minutes, and I love that time. You just have to know, okay? I don't like my own kids, but I love yours. They're awesome. I, actually, I love my kids, too. And I'm sure I'm going to love my grandson or, yeah, grandson even more. <laughs> I'm going to go to the cowboy store next week and get him something already. I love your kids. But that hadn't always been the case. Not about your kids, but just about kids, okay? My parents are here, by the way. This is my dad, Gene, and my mother, Dorothy. They're visiting with us today. We're so glad to have them here and uh, let them have a chance to get meet you and vice versa. Um, but when dad was pastor and I was assistant pastor uh, in the church where we were, uh, we had some struggles in getting children's workers during the summertime or Sunday or Wednesday nights, I believe it was. And so one of the things he said to me was, it's your job. <laughs> uh, what does that mean? And basically what that meant was, if you don't get workers, you're the Wednesday night children's teacher. All right. Now that was a time when I didn't really, I wouldn't all that, I mean, I had kids at home. I didn't certainly want to go to church and have to deal with them. And, uh, but that's what happened. And so for Wednesday nights that summer, I was the teacher. Let me tell you, I was motivated to get a teacher the next summer. But that summer I sat down with these kids on a week to week basis. And one particular night, this one girl came in, she's probably third or fourth grade. And, uh, her family was, you know, prominent in the church. And she came in and she said, uh, I, I, I have a song I want to sing. And let me tell you, I'd heard her sing before. Uh, you know the old, I'd rather hear you sing than eat, because uh, I've heard you eat. I'd have rather heard her eat, I think. Just being honest, all right? So she comes and she says, I want to sing a song. I said, well, you know, we're busy right now. Let's finish up. So we finished up, and everything was done. And she said, you said I could sing when we were finished. Oh, great. All right, so go ahead. So she started singing. Joyful noise to the Lord, I'm sure. Well, at least joyful noise. And I watched her as a child as she zeroed in on one person who was her best friend and sang a song about Jesus to somebody else. And it left me with a very bad taste in my mouth about why she wanted to do that in the first place. Maybe that's too much of a coincidence, so let me bring it a little closer to home. Is it possible that we do our religious acts of service for selfish reasons? One of the first big mistakes I made as a senior pastor had to, <laughs> I, you know, it's the little things that kill you. It's the things you don't expect that kill you. I had a professor that used to say, your people will forgive you for misspelling Melchizedek, but they won't forgive you for not loving them. That's wisdom, all right? I also figured out they won't forget you for not singling them out when they want to be singled out. This particular Sunday, I got, or actually during the week before, I got a phone call from this person, and they said, this coming Sunday is the anniversary of such and such. And I would like to put flowers on the Lord's Supper table in front of the auditorium for that Sunday in memory, commemoration of that anniversary. 
I said, fine. In my mind, I was thinking, I didn't even know we had flowers in there. Well, actually, I knew we had flowers in there, but it was one of those things, you know, it's too expensive to put fresh flowers every week. So we get those kinds that are made up, you know, that you don't have to water. And we put them in there, and then they'd be there forever unless somebody looked at them, and usually it wasn't a man who looked at them and said, you know, those things have been there forever. They look terrible. So somebody would switch them out. I'd never know. I don't, you know, flowers. I don't do flowers. Well, this Sunday, this lady put those up there in commemoration of whatever it was, and I went through the service, and I saw them when I walked in. I thought, man, those are pretty. Never said a word about them. Monday, I get a phone call. I rate that's one word, not two. She was hot. You know why? I put those flowers down there and I told you what they're for. You didn't say anything about it or the fact that I'm the one who put them there. Wow. Really? Why did you put them there? See, I wasn't smart enough to ask her that question. I just kind of tucked my tail and ran in that particular case. Now I'd ask the question, why would you put them there in the first place if you wanted to be identified with them? Is it possible that we do our religious acts of service for selfish reasons? Is that not good enough? Let me give you another one. In New Mexico, I served a church that was named Taylor Memorial Baptist Church. You know why it was named Taylor Memorial Baptist Church? Because Mr. Taylor donated some of his ranch land and said, I'll give you the land if you'll build a church and name it after me. And what's the motive there? Well, I don't know what the motive is, but I know what it looks like. Is it possible that we do our religious acts of service for selfish Reasons. Let me give you the kicker for me. The, the time that it came home for me the very first time about the tendency to be selfish. I had recently surrendered to the ministry, committed my life to full-time vocational service. Teresa and I hadn't been married very long. We were in Belmont Baptist Church in Odessa, Texas. My dad was pastor there. We were young newlyweds and, you know, learning life and all that stuff. And I knew God called me to the ministry, and so I surrendered my life to do that. And one of the things that that church did is help kind of teach some of us young preacher boys. Several came out of that church, and they'd give us opportunities uh, to serve and figure out where God was taking us. All I knew was music, and I didn't know that very well. And so the church, and particularly the music minister, said, we're going to give you some opportunities. We want you to sing a special music in one of the worship services. Great. Happy to do it. So I pulled up, got stuff ready. My wife coached me into being able to sing a particular song. And that Sunday morning that I was scheduled to sing, I went into church, and I was practicing before Sunday school. Music minister was in there, other people were doing their thing. And while I was singing this song, my dad came through. Now, he was pastor, and I'm sure he had other things to do. I don't know why he was in there in the first place. Uh, but he came walking through. And while I was singing, practicing, he looked at me, and he stopped, and he sat down on the front pew. And when it was over, he said, uh, you got a minute? I said, yes, sir. He said, come here, let's talk. So I went and I sat down next to him. And he said this. Maybe not these exact words, but pretty close. He said, listen, son, when you, let me just ask you, that song you're singing, what's it about? Uh, 
<laughs> you know what a Sunday school answer is? You know, it's the, the answer is Jesus, okay? The, the teacher says, what looks like a rat has a long bushy tail and climbs trees. The little boy says, well, it sure sounds like a squirrel, but the answer has to be Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer, right? So he asked me, what's that song about that you're singing? <laughs> um, Jesus? And he said this to me. When you get up, make sure that you're communicating what it's about. He was insightful enough to know that I was communicating what I was about, which was not much. Anytime we come to church in any capacity that you serve, by the way, it doesn't have to be at church, but anytime we come to do God's work, it is not about us. It's about Him. Except when it's not. And the only time that it's not about Him and it's about us is when we make it about us. Doing our religious stuff for the wrong motives. Let me see if I can bring this home the last few minutes that we have. I want you to notice what Jesus does now. The question on the floor for us is what is it that drives your religious life? Why do you do what you do in the name of God? Whether it's a Sunday school teacher or a musician or a preacher or just an attender, why do you do what you do? Look at what Jesus does. The master teacher. I, I know that Jesus is Jesus. I mean, he's the son of God. He put us together. He knows us. And still, when he does stuff like this in teaching, it just blows my mind. What I just got through talking about was what he's talking about, which is selfishness in our religious expression. All right? But notice how he does it. Chapter 6, verse 1 again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. That's the selfish part. And listen to what he says. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. As we're going to see in each of these examples as we move forward, what Jesus does is he goes to the reward part of it, and he'll say to us three different times, if you're doing it that way to be seen by them, then that's your reward. The selfish part of us says, I want to do this, and I want something to show for it. <laughs> wow. And then Jesus comes, and look at what he says. Look, look at what he says. If you're doing it for that reason, then you don't have the reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see what he's doing? He takes that selfish part of us and he exposes it and then he uses it to get us to do the right thing. We're going to find in these three examples as we go forward that he promises a reward for getting it right. And half of us immediately hear that we say, okay, what's a reward? What am I going to get? I sat under a preacher one time, not my dad, a different one. He preached a whole series in the New Testament on the crowns that are in the New Testament. Took them extremely literally to the point that what I heard as I sat there through this whole series, I was thinking, you know, for somebody who gets it right, they're going to have a stack of crowns on top of their heads in heaven. Now, let me tell you what I think's wrong with that. A crown draws attention to the wearer. 
if I get it right, and I think I do at this point, the attention in heaven not going to be on me. Praise God for that. It's going to be on the Lamb of glory who takes away the sins of the world. So either that guy and others are misinterpreting these crown things or he means something different with that. Jesus doesn't say there are no rewards. Get that. (laughs) That selfish part of us that says, I want something to show for my efforts. Jesus says, there's something to show for your efforts. But this reward comes from your Father in heaven. All right, preacher, what do you mean? Work with me through this. What is it that God might give us as a reward for true righteousness? The right motive, the right behavior, the right heart. What could God possibly give us that would make that worthwhile? I'm going to give you my answer, and then I'm going to walk you to how I get to it. You know what the answer is? The best reward that God can give us is himself. It's intimacy with him. Go back with me to the Garden of Eden. Before sin, the choice of Adam and Eve to sin, before that happened, God created man for relationship with himself. The picture of the Garden of Eden before sin entered the picture is God and his creation communing with one another. You look at the curse of the fall and you'll see that it affects every living thing, including this planet. And it broke that relationship for which we were created. Adam and Eve and fellowship with a holy God. Remember that passage that says that God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It was his practice. He was intimate with his creation. And sin broke that. And so that part of us created for God and for a relationship with him and close fellowship with him is broken because of sin. And God takes that so seriously that he sent his son to pay a horrific price for us. And he died on the cross so that we could have that relationship fixed. Now that's important to God. This is not some little half-hearted, let's see if this works. He goes to the nth degree to restore us to that fellowship with himself. And so often, we make salvation about fire insurance. And we look at all that Jesus said, and we even sell it this way as people, evangelical people. We sell it as, you're going to go to hell if you die outside of Christ. You're going to go to hell. And so we talk about the need for a Savior, and we get this fire insurance, and then we take God, we set him on a shelf and say, hey, thanks for the insurance. Now I'm going to go about living my life like you don't exist. <laughs> and God says, wow. I'm putting myself at your disposal. Not to do what you want. That's the selfish thing again. We'll get to those passages. I know some of the passages you're thinking about. We'll get to that. God says, I put myself at your disposal because you can't reach me. I reach you. And I offer you life that will blow your mind. That's the reward. It's a intimate relationship and fellowship with a holy God that we could never have on our own. And when we just totally reduce that to, well, I'm going to get up and I'm going to preach and I sure hope somebody knows how good I am. 
you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The best we can hope for is somebody to say, you sure sang pretty today. When a relationship with God himself is waiting for us. God takes us to that selfish center and he uses it to draw us to himself. Only God can pull that off. And we so quickly reduce it to a matter of doing stuff. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The tragedy of all of this is that churches are full of people who know Christ as Savior, but they've already got their reward because they're living their religious expressions for selfish ends pointed at other people. So why are you here today, really? There's good news for you, regardless of what your answer is. You may have stumbled in here with the wrong motives, but God is seeking you out. And he says to you, even now, oh, you got to come. As the psalmist, I believe it was, said, come taste and see that the Lord is good. That's not religion. That's fellowship. And it's yours if you ask for it. Let's pray. So, Father, we come asking you to help us get it right. It is very possible, Father, that we have so fouled the waters of fellowship with you that we don't even know what it looks like, much less how to pull it off. So we ask that right now you would show us that we don't pull it off. It's a God thing. We just have to ask for it. So, Lord, even now, your spirit is working with us, each of us at our own point of need. Give us a hunger for intimacy with you. Take that selfish core that looks in all the wrong places to be fulfilled and drive it to your heart. That we would see in you that you're good. And that the life that you give us is beyond anything we can even imagine. Help us surrender anew for your glory's sake. Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, they've never for the first time understood your great love as shown in Jesus Christ. I pray that even now you would draw them to yourself. Lives would be changed to the glory of God today, and there would be some born into the kingdom through the blood of Jesus Christ. Sinners, newly saved by grace. Move in us, move among us, and move us is our prayer.